0: A reading from Deuteronomy. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, If I hear the voice of the Lord my God any more, or ever again see this great fire, I will die. And then the Lord replied to me, They are right in what they have said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words of that prophet shall speak my name, I myself will hold accountable. But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods or who presumes to speak my name a word that I have not commanded the prophet to speak that prophet shall die. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Psalm one eleven. We will.
1: A reading from First Corinthians. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, As in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and for whom we exist, for the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food that they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if they see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed." But when you thus sin against the members of your family, and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is, a, is a, the cause of their failing, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of the Lord.
2: Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory Jesus and his disciples went into Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. The season draws us, this season of the epith- to continue to consider ways in which light bulbs are turned on uh, for us. And I think it's helpful to think about in these stories we get to hear about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whether it be baptism or his um, first time in the synagogue teaching, uh, that these might be new ways that Jesus interacts with the world. These might be opportunities for Jesus to learn about the ministry. God has called him to do I want you to be patient with me on that. Um, here is Jesus in a synagogue teaching And that's pretty sort of normal uh, synagogues really were not houses of prayer at the time of Jesus that was done at the temple. Synagogues were places of learning, learning how to read the Torah, learning expositions on the Torah. So there would be readings and then there would be commentaries that would say sort of Rabbi Gamaliel says this and Rabbi Akiva says this point and counterpoint. um, So that they were uh, encouraged. This is interesting, isn't it? They would come to the synagogue to learn what different rabbis, how they disagreed with one another. (laughs) That was the point of going, to the synagogue, how far the church has come from hearing difference of opinion in a holy setting. I'm I'm serious, (laughs) this is what Jesus did. But he did something a little different. Instead of him saying point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint, he said, today this is happening. And during one of those days, people said, wow, that's new. And you know, this is really interesting because this happened about two years ago at St. Thomas. Not that the sermon was anything special that day. Um, Somebody stood up in the middle and started talking. Is anybody here for that day? Um, It was an interesting day um, because many of us started looking for the exits. (laughs) Um, And of course, the truth is um, I had met the person in advance and knew that he had bipolar schizophrenia and um, he just wanted to talk and he left. And I'm pretty sure it's the first time he in his life had done that and not been escorted to the door. It's sort of one of those amazing things to think about, unclean spirits. The Bible uses this word, and and by the way, in Greek, that's the word demon, but it means unclean spirit. so we often say, oh, so-and-so has a demon, and, and, and that's a made-up word in English. The word demon means unclean spirit. It means there's something a little bit abnormal, and we can't really quantify it. Now, now think through, because we didn't, you know, the way I grew up, demons were these red things with the tail, you know, and they were scary, and we talked about exorcisms, and I've got to tell you, I wish exorcisms, like, worked. I wish they worked fast, and we had them in the prayer book, because there was a lot of them I'd like to do. If they would just work like that, you know, like in the story, if you would just convulse and alcoholism would leave you alone the rest of your life, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Because that's an unclean spirit. People's brain doesn't work right anymore. Drug addiction. You could just get it out in a ritual, you know, just convulse it out instead of having to go through recovery the rest of your life. If you could just have PTSD leave you forever Wouldn't that be fantastic? That incident that happened here two years ago, I wonder if it wasn't a way in which we deal with unclean unclean spirits. Sometimes I think we're so ready to get them out the door that we forget that even unclean spirits deserve hospitality. (coughs) This story in Matthew is all about Jesus doing a scandal. The scandal in Matthew is not that Jesus heals somebody, but that he heals them on Shabbat. He should have done it Friday morning. He should have done it Saturday night or Sunday morning, but not on the Sabbath. In Matthew, it's all about Jesus violating religious protocol because it's work to help somebody. In two years, when we hear the story about Matthew, the sermon will be about, isn't that the point of worship? (laughs) That we don't wait. That when we're gathered and we see someone in need, we put everything else aside and do that. By the way, that's why we have peace in the service. I don't know if you realize this. The point of the peace in the liturgy is for you to be reconciled with people in the church with whom you're estranged before communion, We don't usually do it that way, (laughs) because it would take a long time. The sermon's not about that this year. This year, and Mark, the point is that Jesus sees an unclean spirit, and he's not afraid to respond to it. I don't know that we are able to do what Jesus did, as I told you. If you've got the exorcism recipe or right, by the way, there is one. You can only do it if you're a bishop, or if the bishop gives you permission, and I've never seen it. Um, If you've got it, and you've done it to somebody before, would you come to my home after church? (laughs) There are a few folks, and I mean, I'm good, but there are a few folks in my home that I would be grateful for you to use that on. I don't know that it's necessarily the end of what Jesus does that's important. I think it's that Jesus sees the need, and he engages. He doesn't just look the other way. He doesn't just say, oh, that person is just mentally ill and we can't help them. He treats that person like a person. Again, I don't know always what the outcome looks like, but I know we often miss the process. And I wonder if this isn't an epiphany for Jesus, is when he sees somebody in need, he engages them. Maybe this is the first time Jesus spoke to somebody who had an unclean spirit. And I wonder if this isn't something we're invited to learn. I just want to reference this thing that we have these little bags out here in Brumley Hall. And they're for people with those cardboard signs that said, God bless you, or veteran, or hungry. And, you know, I have spent most of my life trying not to look at those people. Because I don't want to give them money. That's uncomfortable. You know, I don't know what they're going to do with it. These bags came around, and I've heard probably five or six people at St. Thomas say this. I used to try to not see those people, and now that I have the bag, I look for them. I wonder if that isn't the kind of epiphany that Jesus has. He tries to encounter them instead of trying to avoid them. I think this bit that Paul offers is really helpful In connection with how we're to do that. The story is a little bit different because you know we've had butchers as a secular occupation for a long time. You think of that person with the apron and the sausages in the window and what on earth did that have to do with church? Well in the ancient world priests were butchers. That's what they did. When they were done chopping up the meat, they'd put on the fancy garments and they'd cook it. Nobody butchered their own meat in the ancient world. If you shot a deer, you brought it to the priest. The priest offered the life of the animal to a god. Whether you were Jewish or Greek or Latin, no one butchered their own meat because the lives of animals were thought to belong to the gods. And what they did when they butchered an animal is they went to an altar. And they, even if the animal was already dead, they symbolically offered the life of the animal. What they were doing is giving the God they were worshiping a share of the food. So if they burned the fat in the hip or if they burned the entrails, they were giving the God they worshiped some food. Of course, they knew the the gods didn't physically eat the food. They knew that, but they thought the gods ate the essence of the animal. And in return, the gods gave them a share of the meat. So if they put an elk and by the way, you'd have to have a table this big (laughs) to put an elk on there, preferably made of stone. Anybody ever seen an elk? That's a big animal. Okay. Anyway, or a pig or a sheep. If you put that up on a table and offered it to Zeus or Ares or Venus or Chemosh or whatever your God that you were worshiping with. It was thought that the God ate some and then the God would bless the food and share it with you no longer at an altar, but at the table of the God. So you gave some to the God you worshiped and then the God gave the rest back to you. Paul is writing to people who understand that eating any kind of meat is a religious action, any kind. Remember that in the ancient world, people probably only ate meat on festival days. They did not have it for breakfast. They did not have it in the evening. And when a sheep was killed in a village, they didn't have refrigerators. All they could do is maybe salt it or make jerky out of it. In general, when they killed a lamb, everybody in the village came and they got some meat until it was gone. So Paul's writing to people, to Christians, who now have figured out those other gods and their tables are not real. ISIS isn't real. This is new knowledge for the Christian community. Chemosh is not real. Jupiter is not real. They're just ideas. They're idols. So why does it matter to eat at the table? What's it matter to go get some meat? On a big festival day, it turned out if they killed three or four buffalo, there'd be lots of meat left over, and you could buy it on sale for really great prices. The early Christian community was saying, since those gods aren't real, I'm gonna go to a meat sale. (laughs) And some folks didn't know all that. Some folks had not figured this out. They thought the early Christians were polytheists, just like them. When they saw the early Christians going to the meat sale, they thought, look at this, they're worshiping Jupiter just like us. They're no different. And Paul is saying, look, you're scandalizing the community. You need to think really hard about what you're doing. Think through the context. Less than 1% of Corinth is Christian. Less than 1%. They're in the extreme minority. And Paul is saying, because of our minority status, you need to make sure you conduct your lives extremely carefully. Do not bend the rules too much. We need credibility. The standard interpretation is that whether it is food or dress, or the music you listen to, or whether or not you choose to drink alcohol recreationally, you should never do something that would bother somebody else's faith. Have you heard that sermon before? I grew up with that. Of course, the problem is you can't do anything. (laughs) You know, I I mean, really there's folks that get bothered if you run more than three miles, so you better not do that. Friends, I want you to consider how different the world we live in is, at least in our own country. We live in a Christian supermajority country, don't we? We live in a country where the only people who are going to be offended by us making value judgments as Christians, quite frankly, are other Christians. The last people who should be offended. Now I used to teach statistics at a Christian school and it was interesting to try to integrate. Um, we were encouraged to integrate faith in whatever faculty we were teaching. So our kids, we read this book and it was all about survey design and analysis. It's called UnChristian. It's written by a survey group called the Barna Group, which is similar to the, 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 the Pew, the Pew studies, if you're familiar with those at all out of Notre Dame. The survey came back. The question they had really been trying to get their their idea on uh, their mind around was why church attendance and affiliation was going down throughout the United States year by year by year. I don't know if you realize that it's happening still continues. Every mainline denomination, everyone going down in the United States and beyond that, the Christian brand, you know, in marketing that word, the brand, was also losing credibility. And so they, they asked, a, uh, you know, they actually did a really good job uh, with, their, with their survey. The questions were actually extremely well worded, as were the techniques. They definitely did a, a, a truly random sample. And the amalgamation of the data was impressive. And they came back with three big objections to the Christian brand in America. Reasons why people think that the church is irrelevant. I want to tell you ten years later haven't changed. Three reasons. Anybody have guesses on what they are? Judgmental, that's number two. 87% of Americans believe that Christians are judgmental. Guesses on the other two? Hypocritical, 84%. That's number three. This is good. Number one reason, does anybody know? It's actually pretty related to those other two. It's specific. 93% of America understands Christians to be homophobic. That's a special kind of being judgmental, right? Not concerned about the value judgment, concerned about how the value judgment is imposed on other people. That's the nuancing of the survey. I want you to consider with me, uh, this is probably wild, you know the Moses story that we read, that when you pretend to speak a word from God, if you're wrong, you get killed. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to pretend, this is out of my head here. Um, So please don't kill me if I'm wrong. Um, But I'd like you to consider that I think the struggle we have, particularly in the American church, is what tables we're dining at right now. They don't know that the tables we're dining at are the ones that I would call compassion. And charity and hope. I, I wonder if we haven't bought into a theology and a way of life. I'm talking about nationwide, church-wide. That looks a lot like uniformity. Sometimes we're so worried about having the same opinion and outlook. I wonder if we're not more worried about that than whether or not we're serving Jesus Christ. What about unity? Now, Unity and uniformity are really different things. Unity and uniformity are different things. One of the, I'll just tell you the the, the, the idolatrous tables I ate at for most of my Christian life Worshiping the Bible instead of God. I've said this before. It's like I was so concerned with being right that I forgot that God didn't want me to be right. God wanted me to have more life. And those are different things. And that was an idol that I worshipped at for most of my religious life. I probably still eat there sometimes. I ate at the the table of idolatry that said, we can't have certain doubts and we can't ask certain questions and we dare not disagree in church because people will see us disagree and they'll think, I don't want to go to a place where they disagree. I can't think of a better witness to the world (laughs) than that church is the place where we can disagree and our value is never in question. I can't disagree with my parents to this day. We just don't talk about stuff, you know? We know if it's painful, we don't talk about it. It could be divisive. I think that's normal. I don't think that's extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary when I know the person to my right and left, that we have different opinions on different issues, and we come together to worship, not in spite of those differences, but holding them, holding them. Sometimes, I wonder, this is going back to what we talked about earlier. If we don't get an inflated sense of order, sometimes we think if something happens out of order, we've defiled church. When the whole reason for coming to church anyway is just to point us to God. It was a difficult service for me. It took me a week to get my head around what happened here two years ago, to be honest. But I think we did it right. I think we did it right. I don't know if I could handle that every week. (laughs) I have to be honest with you. But that week we did it right. And a man who probably had not felt dignity in church his whole life said what he wanted to say, and he left of his own accord, not because anybody made him. I wonder if instead of us worrying about ideas about whether our doctrine is good enough for somebody else, I wonder if that isn't an idolatry that Paul might not be inviting us to avoid. Paul in a contemporary context. I wonder if being right And if having things the way we want them to be. I wonder if those aren't tables that we continue to worship at. That frankly are not God's table. I wonder instead if God isn't asking us to see folks who look like they have unclean spirits. Which might just mean they have different ideas from us. And to engage them. To take the time to say, tell me about that. Here is some space in my worship service for you. Again, I don't know that we cast that stuff out because I don't even know how to do that. I'll be honest with you, I've never cast an unclean spirit out of somebody. I've probably got my own that need to be removed from me. But I am positive, I am positive that we as a church, national, need to make more time for people we're afraid of and people who have different ideas from us. Even if it's just looking them in the eye and saying, tell me about you. I'm not saying anything easy. (laughs) And I'm telling you, I'm not saying to you what I do every day. I'm saying what I perceive to be an opportunity to do what I think Paul's letter and Jesus' epiphany is really about. Delivering us from the idolatry of worshiping ourselves week after week. And making room, making room for the rest of God's children. After all, if we were to scandalize other Christians with our compassion by focusing on accountability instead of being judgmental, those are totally different things, right? Accountability says there's consequences to behavior. Judgmental says you're bad. If we were to focus on compassion and accountability, we might scandalize other Christians, but wow, wouldn't that be new for the Christian brand? (laughs) Of course, the gospel says Jesus didn't come to make Christians happy. Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God. Friends, that's the epiphany I think we're invited to grow into more and more each day, whether in here or in here, with our friends and with our parents. Last story. I know I'm a little bit rambly. Don't tell my mom I said this. She didn't listen to SoundCloud. (laughs) So I think it's okay. My mom is the reason I'm a Christian. But I will tell you, Until my mid-30s, the thing I was most afraid of was telling my mom what's the worst thing I could ever tell my mom. And I figured the worst thing I could ever tell her is that I was gay. I'm not, by the way. (laughs) But in my head, I thought this is the worst thing I could tell my mother. Because my mom is homophobic. In my mid-30s, I realized that my mother would be destroyed by that knowledge. She would lose sleep. It would take years off of her life. I'm afraid of having to say anything like that because in some ways it would hasten my mother's death. The thing I realized about my mom which is really the reason that um, (laughs) one of the reasons that she's such an impressive lady is that her faith would tell her to cut me off. Her faith would tell her to deny contact with me until I gave that up. But my mother wouldn't do that. She would pick the relationship she has with me as my mother over her own Homophobic and judgmental faith. What's more loving than that? I think what Epiphany asks us to do is to reverse that priority and say, whatever the issue is, I don't know about women in ministry, and I don't know about this person who's come out at my office. I don't know if I can love them personally but my faith says i will wonder if that isn't what epiphany is about to have a faith that says that person is beloved by god and i don't know about in the human economy if i can believe that but my faith says i will wonder if that isn't the epiphany our world needs a faith that dictates compassion instead of just an ordinary relationship. Maybe I'm wrong. So my prayer is that God will guide me and us to a way in which we can invite people not to sacrifice other people at God's altar, but invite them to God's table. Please join me as we pray our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.